Today we turn in the Word of God to Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 34. There's an outline as well on pages 4 and 5 if you'd like to see that as we hear the Word of God welcoming those who are visiting with us again. We come now to almost the very end of this series in Romans 8. Hear now the word of God. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is he who died, more than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So far the reading of God's holy word, may he bless it to us today by his Holy Spirit. Ed Welch shares two stories with us as we begin. One is of a woman whose father died in a retirement home at the end of an extended illness. Not many people knew about it. Two weeks later, she left the church, walking outside, and another woman came up to her and leaned in quietly and said, My father recently died too. That's all. She simply wanted to say that she remembered, and in some way, she understood. The other woman, of course, immediately embraced her and started to cry. The next story is very different. A story of a woman who had been surviving under the weight of depression for four years. She looked normal and healthy outwardly, but inwardly she felt like the walking dead, Ed Welch says. She was reluctant to confide in other people because the church can be clumsy around chronic suffering. That's true, isn't it? But she was beginning to speak more openly, and she'd asked some people to pray for her. One Sunday morning after the service, another woman was walking by and stopped and said, I heard you were depressed. The best thing you can do is adopt a gluten-free diet and spend more time in the Bible. And off she went. Ed Welch asks, which story feels like God's response to your pain and shame? Is he your God of compassion? Or does he dispense advice and move on to the next person in line? It's a great question, isn't it? Great to think about for us as a church family as well. As you look at Jesus, your high priest, you will find that he knows your suffering. He is faithful. He entered death for you. He was separated from the Father for you. He experienced the isolation of an outcast for you. He rose to the place of heavenly power. He ascended. He has compassion for those who feel forgotten, for sinners, and for those who are sinned against. We see today as we come near the end of Romans 8 
a gospel promise and assurance of salvation. And our words are like Paul. What shall we say to these things? All that Paul has been telling us from the beginning of this chapter comes to a crescendo now with a series of questions. They are who questions, W-H-O. We begin by looking at the curse of the cross. Paul tells us in verse 31 and 32, I want you to think about what Christ has done on the cross for you. Who will separate you from the love of Christ? That's where he's headed. And right now, who is against you? It's an interesting question, isn't it? Because we have enemies. The world, the flesh, and the devil are those enemies. The devil meaning Satan, who is an adversary. He is a slanderer. He has been God's enemy since the very beginning. Going back to Genesis 3, after the fall, he is at enmity and hatred with the woman and the seed of the woman and God's people and God himself. He is the great deceiver. That's important as we look at this today. Our own sinful flesh is against us, meaning in our hearts, whatever is not the fruit of redeeming grace, that indwelling sin, that's waging war. The world around us, the system of rebellion and pride, this present evil age that we heard of in Galatians 1 in the greeting today. Evil has intruded into every part of God's world. The political, the social, the economic, the ecological, the biological. The world allures us to think that sin is normal and right and holiness is weird and wrong. Those are enemies that we're facing. In the context, Paul knows that, but in particular, he's referring back to Psalm 56, verse 9 here, where the psalmist is surrounded by physical enemies who are taunting him. And God, in that psalm, reminds him that he keeps your tears in a bottle. Maybe you've had long days and nights of tears recently, or in the past. Lament. Grief, sorrow. God keeps them in his bottle. He is for you, Christian. If God is for you, who can be against you? The enemies are fierce. We are weak, but the gospel reminds us God is on my side. How do we know God is for us? If we look to the things of life, the circumstances we're facing, and say that's how it is proved that God is for me, those things change, don't they? Maybe you're in a season of prosperity and health and joy and gladness right now. If so, praise be to God. But maybe you're going through a season where those things are not present. God is for you in prosperity and adversity. How do we know? Verse 32, the cross. Paul wants us to think here from the perspective of the Father. The Father loves his Son, his only begotten Son. Dads, you love your daughters and your sons. Moms do as well. Dads and sons, I want us to think about this for a minute. Do you remember when Absalom died? Joab thought, ha, he's gone. The traitor. David tore his robe. Absalom, Absalom, my son. 
Would that I had died instead of you. David loved Absalom. But that was a pale reflection of the love of the heavenly father for his son. And the father who loves the son did not spare the son, it says. That word spare brings us back to another Old Testament account. God says, Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love. Ishmael had left. Isaac was now maybe 15 years old. Take him to Mount Moriah, a three-day journey. They arrive there. The ascent is too steep for the donkey, so the wood is placed on the back of Isaac's shoulders, pointing forward to Christ who carried his own cross. They walk in silence. Isaac says, my father... Where is the lamb for the burnt offering? That's the question of the entire Old Testament. Where's the lamb? Abraham says God will provide. He didn't know how. At that point, he thought Isaac would die and God would raise him from the dead. Hebrews 11 tells us that. The altar is built. The wood is laid. Isaac is tied up. Abraham has the knife And an angel calls from heaven. Abraham, Abraham, it's urgent. God intervenes. And Abraham sees a substitute, the ram. It's provided at that moment as the sacrifice. God spared Isaac, but God did not spare his own son. Verse 32. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane hours away from the crucifixion. He asks that he be spared. My father, if possible, let this cup pass from me. The cup of the judgment of the wrath of God that we deserve and our sins. Jesus, as a human, doesn't want to die. What human would? This shows the genuineness of the incarnation. Yet not my will, but your will. The Father cannot spare him because a covenant has been made in eternity between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. A covenant of redemption that people will be saved, sinners will be rescued. The Father did not spare the Son but delivered him and gave him up, it says. That language of delivered comes right out of the Gospel of Matthew. Where after Jesus prays in the garden, Judas delivers him in betrayal over to the Jewish authorities out of greed for silver. Those authorities deliver him over to Pilate from envy. Pilate delivers him to be crucified out of a cowardly concern for his career. The Bible says we delivered him up. Our sins are laid on him. It says Jesus gave up his own life. But in and behind all of that is Romans 8.32. The Father is giving him up. Galatians 3 says, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Quoting from Deuteronomy 21. It tells us that 
Jesus himself came to be made a curse. As people were there that day he was crucified, people saw that event differently. Some saw the execution of what they thought was a criminal. Caiaphas saw that this man dies for the good of the nation. One of the thieves on the cross said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The centurion said, surely this man was the son of God. Much more was going on here than meets the eye. Some of them had eyes to see. As awful as crucifixion is, as painful and and prolonged, there have been thousands of people who have died that way. The Father gave him up. Isaiah 53, it was God's will that this happened. He delivered over his son to the damnation and the abandonment that sin merited. That's what's happening behind the scenes. Jesus has made sin for us. He bears the curse we deserve to bear. The cross is the pouring out of that judgment, that darkness that we deserve. In the Old Testament, there are pictures of this. The day of atonement, the priest sacrifices the lamb, kids. The blood is shed. And then there's a goat that the priest puts his hands on, and that goat is sent outside the camp, the scapegoat, symbolizing the transfer of the sins of the people to that animal. The goat receives the curse. Why then does Jesus die? Derek Thomas asks, why? The wages of sin is death. Jesus never sins. Why does he die? Either, one, there is no justice and a sinless man dies, or two, he dies because he deserved to die. Thomas says this, he didn't sin, but our sins are reckoned to him. And the father looks on Christ and he sees the greatest sinner the world has ever seen, Luther says. The death Jesus endures is the reflex of God's holiness to sin and it is the just thing to do. The justice of Christ's death lies in the fact that our sins are reckoned to his account. It's a cosmic event, an atoning death. He becomes like that scapegoat, crucified on a cross where criminals were to hang in public shame, outside the gate of the city. In and of himself, he's a lamb without blemish. He's perfect and spotless and majestic. But by the imputation of sin, all the ugliness of every one of the sins of every one of his people is concentrated on him. God cursed him. The sin that I'm guilty of doesn't come back and strike me as I deserve. He bears it. The guilt that belonged to us goes to him. He is our substitute. He is the shepherd and the sheep. He's cast out for us. He suffers hell for us. He undergoes the torment for us. The father loves his son. He loves his son so much he gave his only begotten son For us. And here's where we have to theologically make a 
very important statement. Don Carson. It is utterly mistaken to picture God the Father standing over us in judgment and potential wrath while the Son, more loving and approachable, speaks to the Father for us and cajoles him into forgiving us. That's not what this is about at all. The cross is the Father's plan. Jesus goes there to perform the Father's will. We don't think of God in tritheistic terms. It's not that the son takes a bad-tempered father and convinces him to forgive us. The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one in purpose and design. The father gave him up for who? For us all. Put your name there, loved ones. For Roy and for Julie and for Tom and for Susan. He loved me. The youngest of you, children. The oldest of us. The healthiest of us. The most physically frail. The glorious gospel of God is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. From every tribe and tongue and nation. Every country on earth through all of history. This is love. Paul's gospel logic, as Ferguson says, tells us this. If God did not spare his son, but gave him up for us all, what is the conclusion we reach? If he has gone to that length because he loves you that much, he will graciously give you all things. It's a gift as you are united to Jesus. It's not a miserly gift. It's not... Take the leftovers. Gracious, free at the expense of the suffering of Christ. All things. It's not saying, okay, that means a new car has got to show up on the driveway tomorrow. If God in his providence has given you the means to have a new car, praise God. In his kind providence. But if not, praise God. All things here is talking ultimately of being conformed to the image of Jesus. The new heavens, the new earth, resurrected bodies. The beloved son in whom dwells the father's love pours that love out onto you, all things. We saw that last week. Find your rest there, Christian, in the finished work of Jesus. Your enemies will rage against you, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Things will go wrong in life that might have gone right before. Don't look to those things for your assurance of salvation. Because secondly, the charge of condemnation comes. From the curse of the cross to the charge. Do you see the next question, verse 33? Paul wants you to know the assurance of your salvation. He wants you to be built up in the love of Christ for you. He wants you to have confidence that if you fear the Lord, you don't need to fear anything else. He wants you to live before you die. To live as Christ, to die as gain. And he knows that we can't shift the blame. We're guilty before God. In Adam's fall, sinned we all. Our condition, our nature is sinful, plus our own sin 
We experience the accusation of God's law against us. I continue to struggle with sin, sin as a Christian. We all do. Our view of God sometimes can twist us. We can start to think, I've got to perform to earn his love, rather than saying that Christ has finished it and resting in him. But Paul's asking a who question, W-H-O. See that? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? He's asking us for a name, Ferguson says. Who is the who? He's talking here of Satan. Among his many gifts, R.C. Sproul wrote children's books. One of them about a priest that's going to preach a sermon and he shows up with dirty clothes. Have you read that, kids? Some of you have. On his way there, he falls in the mud. Malice, the court magician, mocks him, maligns him. You cannot preach here with those dirty clothes. He's basing that on Zechariah 3, where Joshua, the high priest, has dirty clothes, his sin, and cannot stand before God in that sin. And Satan is accusing him. And that's what Satan does. He did it to Job. This Job guy only loves you, God, because of all the stuff you've given him. If you take away the stuff, he won't love you. He's out for himself. David, you see what he did with that woman? And to her husband? Did you see the way she talked to her husband this morning? The way she spoke to her kids last night? Do you see what is in that man's heart? That pride and that lust? God, do you know what this guy's about? You can't forgive him. Do you see what's in his mind and her heart and what they're looking at online? Satan is a blackmailer. He doesn't want you to tell anyone. He wants it a secret. The opinions of people are true about you. You brought these problems on yourself. You deserve this to happen to you. You don't have real faith. Satan says God is angry with you. God doesn't protect you. You should be angry at God. You're a disgrace. You should lie and cover it up. Don't let yourself be known. That is his lie to us. Don't feel numb yourself. Don't get close to anyone. Reject them before they reject you. Push people away with anger. It works. Protect yourself with your performance. Control everyone around you. Satan lies to us in all sorts of ways. And as Welch says, he usually only needs one lie. It's spoken often in the voice of the person who has hurt us the most. Before we become Christians, Satan tries to hide our sin and say it doesn't matter. Once you become a Christian, Satan wants to expose our sin and say that's all that matters. So we limp along. We lack assurance. We struggle thinking God doesn't love us. Some of us were raised in homes where we weren't encouraged. We're bitter. We're hardwired for self-condemnation. We're so hardwired for it, we constantly criticize others. 
And that may be a camouflage of the fact that Satan is always accusing us. So what do you tell Satan, loved ones, when he accuses you? That I've lived a good life? That I'm a moral person? That I really work hard? That I go to church and I serve? That my faith is really strong? How do you answer Satan's attack? Revelation 12, 11 says, They conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. Because of the blood of the Lamb, because of the work of Christ, Satan has been cast out of heaven. He can't accuse you anymore. He has no basis for it because of what Christ has done for you. I love this illustration by D.A. Carson. Some of you have heard it. It brings this out. There's two Jewish men, picture this, named Smith and Jones. They live in Goshen about 1,500 years before Christ. They're living in the land of Egypt, the time of the ten plagues. As they get to the tenth plague, Mr. Smith says to Mr. Jones, have you put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of your house? Mr. Jones says, yes, I have. Moses said the angel of death is passing through the land. Some of the plagues have afflicted just the Egyptians, but this one comes through the whole land of Goshen. And the firstborn of sons and cattle will die. Mr. Jones asks, how about you, Mr. Smith? Mr. Smith says, yeah, I've done it. I've put the blood of the lamb on the door, but I'm worried. Have you seen the plagues, frogs, remember kids, lice, hail? Look, Mr. Smith says, I only have one son, Charlie. You have three sons. I don't want to lose my one son. Mr. Jones says, well, what are you worried about? God has promised through Moses, if you put the blood on the post, your son will not die. You put the blood there. Mr. Smith says, yes, but I'm scared just the same. That night, the angel of death passes through the land. Who lost their son? Mr. Smith or Mr. Jones? The answer is neither. The promise wasn't based on the intensity of their faith or the joy of their obedience, but because they hid under the blood of the Lamb. We are not saved by our faith. Christ saves through faith. It's not the strength or the weakness of my faith, but the blood of Lamb that cleanses me. Christ, the object of faith. That's how you overcome the accuser. Your conscience, your sin, and Satan. You overcome by the blood of the Lamb. The priest with dirty clothes was told about a prince. The prince provided clothes for this priest. He wore the clothes and he lives his life trusting in that goodness of the prince in his clothes. Right out of Zechariah 3. The angel said, take off his dirty clothes, put a clean robe and garments upon him. 
God has done something far bigger than our voice of condemnation in our hearts. We answer the accuser and say, I've sinned. I've done worse sins even than you pointed out. I'm a sinner. It's my condition. I have a Savior whose blood cleanses the most dirty of sins. Jesus didn't love me for my good works, Spurgeon says. They were not the cause of his beginning to love you. He does not love you now for your good works. They're not the cause of his continuing to love you. He loves you because he loves you, loved ones. That's how our assurance grows. That's how by the Spirit we begin to delight to obey him. There's no accusation that can stick against you. There's no condemnation that can stand against you. You see how he goes on now in verse 34? Because as Ferguson says, we might think, well, yes, but. That's true, but I'm the exception. I feel condemned as I worship. I don't want to praise God and sing because I feel this gnawing guilt. I don't want to tell others of the love of Jesus because I'm guilty. My past pops up. My shame is in my head. That's what Satan wants to do. And that's why God says to you again, know my love for you. You who grew up in a home where you were constantly criticized. You who loved to murmur and complain about everything. You who hammer on yourself. You who live for the approval of others. Hear God's approval of you in Jesus today. Hear the assurance of God's love that you have by the Spirit. The opposite of condemnation is justification. It is God who justifies, Paul says. Who is to condemn? Justification is a legal, forensic verdict on behalf of God the judge that you are not guilty and you are positively righteous. It's the declaration that God pronounces on the last day of judgment brought into the present right now and it cannot be undone. What does justification mean? Christ lived for you. Thank God for the act of obedience of Christ, Machen said on his deathbed. No hope without it. Christ died for you. He paid the penalty of past, present, and future sins for you. Think of the futility of what Satan's doing. Christ is the final judge before whom we will all appear one day on Judgment Day, 2 Corinthians 5.10. The one who has authority to judge you is the one who died for you. The charge doesn't stick. It doesn't stand. God has given you the righteousness of his son. Your sin imputed to Christ. His righteousness imputed to you. Jesus died for you. More than that. Jesus was raised from the dead for you, Paul says. His resurrection means the Father is pleased with the work he did for you. It proves his acceptance, the Father's, for your sins, that Christ has 
sacrificed himself. If he didn't rise from the dead, he's just one of billions who are still in the tomb. Because he rose, the claims are vindicated. He is the God-man. He ascended for you. He is seated triumphantly at God's right hand for you. In the Old Testament, the priest never sat down. Why? Because the work was never done. Animal after animal, the day of atonement, year by year, lamb and ram and blood and guts. Jesus is at the right hand of God. His work is finished. He's in control. He cares for us in our weakness. He knows our frailty. He intercedes for you. Paul just builds one after another. Have you ever had someone who's faithful to you as a friend? A person that's there for you if your car breaks down four hours away from home in the middle of the night. Do you have a person you can call who will come and would be upset if you didn't tell them you needed help? You can count on Christ. He's faithful. He's not moody. He never tires of showing you mercy. He never wearies of pouring out his grace. He's eager to help you in the middle of the night. He died under your condemnation. He rose for your vindication. He reigns for your salvation. He intercedes daily for your preservation. You can rest, Christian. Rest in his finished work. The Father, Son, and Spirit. The glorious triune God. It's the gospel. He lives as a high priest to intercede. What does he say to the Father? This one, Jim and Jane, that one Satan is accusing, that one is mine. He's mine. She's mine. This child is mine. Atonement has been made for them. I died for her. I shed my blood for him. God cannot demand payment twice. It's been paid. Jesus says, I want that one that you have given me to be with me and to behold my glory. This one who's struggling today under accusation and guilt, I want this loved one in my presence beholding the glory of God. Emmaus Road, what shall we say to these things? The glorious gospel of the triune God. You are loved by God. Not with sentimentality, but with a deep certainty that God is not opposed to us, even though we deserve it. Live in the knowledge of that love of God. The enjoyment of it. The assurance of Christ's love for you. Immerse yourself in it. He draws near to you. Encourage others around you in the love of Jesus. Don't keep it bottled up, but share this love with your family at church, your neighbors, telling them that the gospel of God is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. For the weakest and the strongest Christian, 
for everyone in between, what shall we say to these things? We worship the Lord. The Spirit brings the gospel into our minds, grips our affections, so we begin to not just say, oh, that's an interesting point. But as Ferguson says, by the Spirit of God we say, isn't Christ glorious? Isn't he beautiful? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory now and forevermore. Amen. Beloved, this